All right, well, before we look at God's word, let us speak with him and ask for his assistance. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come once more this Sunday to look at your word. We thank you that we have your word. We pray that we will appreciate it as your word, that we will believe it is your word, that here we can hear your voice speaking to us. We recognise that we are so sinful and that we cannot understand without your help, without your Holy Spirit enlightening our minds as we hear your voice. We pray that you may do so this morning, that you may give us much of your Holy Spirit so that we can comprehend what you have to say and be greatly encouraged as believers of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, there's always popular people in the world. When I was at school, I wasn't uh, a very popular person. I was more of the nerd category. So I wasn't one of those people that seemed to have people flock to them. And, you know, they, they don't, it's either they're good looking or they're really skilled at sports and those kinds of things or they're really outgoing. And so they generally attract lots of people to them. And I wasn't in that category. But we see this throughout, not just at school, but we see this throughout our society. We see different people who are popular. And the reason people are popular can be different things. At school it tends to be frivolous things from what I can gather. But also in in society you see people being popular for uh, good reason. They're popular because they're skilled and they're doing great things in the community. So uh, we see that with certain politicians. We're very happy with and we like them because uh, they do good things for us. And we see it with some people, uh, celebrities, we, we, we like a lot of them because we think they're good actors. But then there's some people who are popular just for being controversial. They're people who are, you don't really know how they became a celebrity. They're just celebrities because of the things that they do that are controversial. I mean, I can't really nail down why I know about Paris Hilton. Like, why is her name familiar to me? It, 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 it's nothing that I, I... She has been in a couple of movies, I believe, but nothing of, of major significance. She's kind of one of those extras that's on the side there. And, but why is she familiar to me? Is it because she's controversial? She does controversial things. She's in the media for being controversial. Uh, when she was in jail uh, last year, it was a very controversial moment in her life and, and everyone was flocking to uh, TV sets to look at what was going on with Paris Hilton and she was in jail and everyone had sort of comments on whether she should be in jail and whether she shouldn't be. I didn't meet too many people who didn't think she should be in jail. But yes, uh, these are people who are just popular for being controversial. And here this morning we're going to be looking at John the Baptist and he was a popular person as well. We don't know this from John's Gospel. John's not very, uh, he doesn't talk about the number of crowds coming along but as you saw in the Lego there we saw uh, lots of people coming along and we know that from the other Gospels. The other Gospels are very clear that John was a popular person and lots of people were going out to him. Why was John popular? Well one of the reasons that he attracted some crowds and he attracted the people that we see coming to him this morning in John's Gospel, is because he was being quite controversial. He was doing something very controversial. What was that? What was he doing that was controversial? Well, he was baptising people. Now, is it controversial to baptise people? Well, the Jews did baptise people. It was something that they did. And, but the reason why it was controversial that John was doing it, he was baptising Jews. See, the Jews baptised people, but the only people they baptised were non-Jews, people who wanted to convert to Judaism and so they were washed to wash away their filth and convert to Judaism. But people who were born Jews, 
They didn't need to be baptised because they were born righteous people. They were part of God's chosen people. They didn't need to do any sort of rite of, uh, of conversion. They didn't need that. But here John is out in the Jordan River baptising Jews. And so it's quite a controversial thing that he's doing and it's not surprising that lots of people were going not just to be baptised but to go along and find out what's he up to, why is he doing this, to watch him at it. And that's why we see these religious leaders coming along to see him. We see this in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 19. If you've got Bibles there, it'd be good to have them open as we go through the passage and if you've got a church pew Bible, it's found on page 1049, 1049. Beginning at verse 19, we see there these people coming to see John. Verse 19 reads, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. They wanted to know who he was. What are you doing out here? We've got lots of people coming. You're baptising people. Who are you? Who do you claim to be? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning is who is John the Baptist? Why is John the Baptist important? And we get uh, from their questioning we get quite a few answers. And so my first main point this morning is to look at what John the Baptist was not. What wasn't he? Because he he goes through, as they ask him questions, to answer what he is not. So my first main point this morning, what John the Baptist was not. And the first thing he's not in their list of questions is the Christ. We see it in verse 20. Verse 20, He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They were interested whether he claimed to be the Christ and he says, no, I am not the Christ. He confesses freely that I am not the Christ. Who is the Christ? Well, the Christ is the Greek word for the word Messiah in Hebrew and it means anointed. It means an anointed one. And in the Old Testament we see lots of people who are anointed. We see uh, priests, prophets and kings are being anointed with oil as they take on a, a work for the Lord. But here we, are, we have people asking, are you the Christ? Who is the Christ? Well, uh, tradition had started within Judaism that there was going to be one particular anointed one, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, who would come and bring salvation for the people of Israel. And the Jews commonly thought that it was going to be salvation from the Roman yoke. The Romans were oppressing them. They are in slavery basically to the Romans, uh, the Roman rule. And so they thought that this Messiah, this Christ, would come along. And they naturally thought, as lots of Christ was sort of being raised up at the time, lots of people claiming to be the Christ, they thought, John's out here, he's got a lot of people coming to him, he's doing something controversial. Is he doing this controversial thing because he has the authority of the Christ? Does he think he is the Christ? But John says, no, I am not the Christ. And so that's the, the first big thing that you might want to claim to be. So they say, oh, well, what, what are you? And so they continue to ask him. Verse 21, what else is John not? They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. I am not Elijah. Now, this text here is a, a problematic text that, uh, in some ways because here we have John the Baptist saying he's not Elijah But if you go over to Matthew 11, verse 14, it actually says there, Jesus says that John the Baptist was Elijah. So we've got Jesus saying, John the Baptist is Elijah, and we've got John himself saying, I'm not Elijah. Here we've got a bit of a contradiction. So how do we resolve this contradiction? Well, we resolve the contradiction by trying to understand what it means to be called Elijah. Why are they asking John, are you Elijah? Well, who was Elijah? 
There was an Elijah the Tishbite in the Old Testament. This Elijah, who was a prophet and did great miraculous signs, very exciting stuff as a kid reading about Elijah. Uh, Elijah was there and he was one of those people, there's only two in the Old Testament that we've got recorded, who didn't actually die a physical death. Enoch is one of them and Elijah was the other one. He was actually taken up into heaven without dying. And so a tradition had started amongst the Jews that Elijah would return. That same Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite, he would come back because he'd never died. He would come back physically and before the Christ was to come. And so they're wondering, are you Elijah? Of course, we, we, um, we saw in the Lego there, he, he was dressed like Elijah in some ways as well. He was out in the desert. Elijah the Tishbite was always out in the desert. Elijah the Tishbite was eating funny things. John the Baptist was eating funny things. Maybe this is Elijah come back for his favourite food. And so they're quite interested. Are you Elijah? Are you that physical Elijah? And he says no. But Jesus says that he is Elijah in the sense that he is in the spirit of Elijah because in the Old Testament there, was a, uh, there is signs that Elijah was to come before the day of the Lord. And we saw that in the passage we read from Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 reads there the last bit of the Old Testament. It says there in verse 5 of Malachi chapter 4, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. There is a prediction that Elijah would come and Jesus understands this, he rightly understands this to be that it's in the spirit of Elijah that John the Baptist comes. John comes not as Elijah himself, but he comes in the spirit of Elijah. He comes as this prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord to warn people to repent for the kingdom of God is drawing near. So John, in one sense, he is Elijah, but it's in the spiritual sense. But the question here, of course, is from the Jews and they're saying, are you Elijah, the real Elijah, the one who never died? And John says, no, I'm not Elijah. So two things we've seen that John the Baptist is not. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. The third and last thing that we know that John the Baptist is not is also in verse 21 we see they asked him, are you Elijah? And then he said, I'm not. And then they say, are you the prophet? He answered, no. He's not the prophet. Who's the prophet? What's it mean, the prophet there? I mean, clearly he is a prophet. He's out there in the desert. He's prophesying to people. He's telling them to repent. A great day is coming. He is a prophet, but he's not the prophet. Who is the prophet? Well, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, right back to when Moses was around, Moses was around and he mentioned Deuteronomy chapter 18 that a certain prophet would come. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 17. Uh, Verse 17 I'll begin with. The Lord said to me in Deuteronomy chapter 18, what they say is good, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. And so the Jews had built a bit of a tradition on this, a bit of an interpretation on this passage from Deuteronomy that a certain prophet would come, the prophet, a big shot prophet would come. And they associated that with the time of the Messiah as well, that the Christ would come and this prophet would be around as well. And so they were interested if John says he's not the Christ and he says he's not Elijah, who else could he be? Oh yeah, 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 the prophet. Maybe you're the prophet. That prophet that is said to come along with God's words. And he says, what did he say? Verse 21, he answered, no, I'm not the prophet. And so they start to get a little frustrated there. They've, 
my first main point was what is John the Baptist not? Now we've got to look at what John the Baptist is. What is John the Baptist? And so they are getting a bit frustrated there and so we see it play out but we, we see it earlier in the passage as well in the part that we didn't read from John chapter 1. We see it quite clearly spelled out by John the Apostle, the person who wrote the book of John, what John the Baptist is. What is John the Baptist? He's very clear. He wants to make clear what John the Baptist is. He is a witness. And we see this a number of ways. Verse 7 of chapter 1, he, that is John the Baptist, we know that from verse 6, he came as a witness. And then we see uh, in verse 8, he himself, John, was not the light, he came only as a witness. And then we know that John the Baptist is a witness because of the regular word coming up of testify and testimony. We see it there in verse 7 as well. He came as a witness to testify. We see it in verse 15. John testifies, verse 19. Now this was John's testimony, verse 32, over the page if you've got a Black Pew Bible. Then John gave this testimony and then verse 34. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. John, the Apostle John, about John the Baptist, is wanting to make clear that John the Baptist was a witness. And what does a witness do? A witness testifies to facts. A witness is not there to attract attention to himself. He's there to tell true facts. He's not to give a scintillating story that he embellishes on the truth a bit and make a bit of fiction in there to make it really attractive story. He's there to testify. That's what you want a witness to do in court, isn't it? You don't want them to make stuff up. You want them to give a true and accurate record. And so John is a witness. He's there to give a testimony. And so, my third main point then is, what is John the Baptist's testimony? What is his testimony? We've seen what he is not. We've seen that he is a witness. What is his testimony? If he's such a great witness and John the Apostle wants to make clear that he's a witness, what is his testimony? Well, John testifies firstly that someone greater is coming, that someone greater is coming. And we know this from two parts of this passage. Verse uh, 26 and 27 is the first one. Verse 26 says, I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. What is John's testimony? He's testifying that someone greater is coming. I've got lots of crowds coming, I'm doing something very controversial, I'm dunking people here in the river, but someone greater is coming. That's what I'm here to testify about. I'm here to testify that someone greater is coming. How great will this person be? Well, he says there, He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, that may seem like a very familiar phrase to us and we may not really think too much of it, but it was quite a dirty job to untie people's shoes. Now, and even today, if I was to tell you that when I get home from work, my wife makes me a cup of coffee and I sit back and then she undoes my shoes and takes off my socks for me, maybe gives me a nice foot massage, it would really say something about our relationship and the level of relationships within the house, wouldn't it? I should put in a disclaimer, she doesn't do that for me, I don't make her take my shoes off. But if she was to do it, it would seem to be sort of a lower grade duty in the house and it wouldn't be something that would be very attractive for her to do. But even more so in the time of John the Baptist. In the time of John the Baptist, we didn't, they didn't have concrete footpaths that are fairly clean. 
They didn't have tar on their roads. They had dirt roads and they had dust and you walked pretty much everywhere. And so your sandals got really filthy and really dirty. And so it was a terrible thing to have to take off your own shoes because it meant you mucked up all your hands and you got unclean. And one thing with the Jews is they never liked being unclean. And so it was seen to be the filthy job and it was relegated to the lowest people within the household to do that, to take off a person's shoes. And it's interesting that even the rabbis, the religious teachers, they used to have students and the rabbis never actually got paid for their task because they didn't want to be taking money from teaching God's word. So they used to get the students to do all their jobs for them and we see that to some extent in some universities today. You get uh, professors getting uh, students to do work for them And so this used to happen with the rabbis. And so the students would do all kinds of tasks for them, all these menial tasks around the house, prepare them, you know, their drinks and their their meals and that thing. But there was actually a law written that the students were never to be asked by a rabbi to take off the shoes of the rabbi. It was seen to be, oh, not that. You can ask me to do anything else, rabbi, but not take off your shoes. And so that job was relegated to a slave. It was the slave of the household was to take off your shoes. It was the lowest person within the household was to take them off. And here we have John the Baptist saying, that filthy job that no one wants at all, that no one in their mind would dream of wanting, this person coming, I'm not qualified to do that. I'm out here popular and everyone's coming to me, even though I've made a splash with religious leaders, But I am so low down, I am so unworthy that this person coming, I can't even take their shoes off. I'm not worthy to be there and touching their feet as I take off the shoes. This person is going to be tremendously great. And that is my testimony, he says. Someone greater is coming. But he also, not just with the shoes, he also indicates that someone greater is coming in verse 30 as well. How great this person will be. Verse 30 It says, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, not necessarily today, but we uh, we don't appreciate the wisdom of older people. We generally think younger may be better at times and we think, oh, the old people, they don't know what's going on, particularly when it comes to things like computers. We we think, oh, yes, younger people, we really know what's going on. And... But in this society, an older person is seen to be greater. An older person, an elder, is seen to be greater. And so here we have another indication from John the Baptist, not as, I think, a striking indication as uh, undoing the shoes, but here we have him saying, this person is greater. Why? It says in verse 30, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. This person was before me. And so he is greater as well because he has been, and I mean, we know from the context around this that this person was much greater because he came much more before John. It wasn't like he was born 20 years before John. He's always been, he's been around from the beginning of time. And that leads me to my next bit about John's testimony is, well, who is this greater person? John Baptist is going on about someone greater coming. Who is this greater person? And we see that the greater person is, of course, Jesus. Verse 29. Verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day... John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said, 
a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It is Jesus Christ. This person that is greater that is coming, it is Jesus Christ. And then he continues to say three things about Jesus. Three extra parts of his testimony about Jesus. One is there in verse 29 as well. And it says there in verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first thing John testifies about Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, it's a familiar phrase to us as Christians, but of course it refers to the the sacrificial lamb, the need for a sacrifice to be made before sin can be taken away. It it would have seemed very odd at the time for someone to say the Lamb of God because generally you're offering lambs on your own behalf. You take a lamb to the temple to have your sin atoned and it would be sacrificed there so that your sins would be taken away. But here we hear that God is giving a lamb. Why is God giving a lamb? God is not sinful. God is not in need of a sacrifice to take away his sin. But here we have the Lamb of God. Who is this lamb being offered for? Well, John tells us, who takes away the sin of the world. We needed a lamb to be offered to take away our sin and it needed to come from God. In the Old Testament they had all the animal sacrifices there and they, were merely re- they never really took away sin but they were pointing away to that one lamb that God would give and that was Jesus Christ. We cannot offer anything else to God. We can only offer our, our faith and our belief in that lamb. God does the work. He sends his lamb to die for our sins, to take away the sin. We can't do it ourselves. And if you're sitting here this morning and you haven't believed that for yourself, if you are trusting in your own works, if you are trusting in something else, know that it is not going to get you anywhere. Your sin that is recorded every day, everything that you do wrong, God keeps a record of it. Every time you lie, every time you cheat, every time you steal, maybe simply stealing on your taxes, lying there, every time you do that, it is added up and it gathers up as your sin. And one day you'll be called to give an account for it. And the only way that you can avoid that, giving an account for your sin, is to have it taken away taken away. It's, ne- it's not that the, your sin was never occurred at all. Of course we're still sinners and we're still really, uh, our sin is there but instead it is put on Jesus Christ and we no longer have to experience the punishment for it. He takes it away. He casts it off for us. He takes away our sin and you need to believe that if you want to have eternal life you need to look to the Lamb of God. Follow John's testimony here about the Lamb of God. But that's not all that he says about the Lamb of God. It's not all he says about Jesus. John testifies two other things. In uh, verse... uh, He he testifies about the the Lamb of God and then he says that the Holy Spirit was upon him as well. We saw that in the children's talk, verse 32. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Jesus would have the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit came and remained on him. It's an important word, that word, remain, because the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament could come and go from people. We see that with Saul. The Holy Spirit left him at times 
And it came on him and then it left him. And he no longer had the power of the Holy Spirit. But what happened with Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit came and remained on him. There's an anointing here for his ministry of going into, uh, of preaching the word and then going ultimately to the cross as that great sacrifice. And so he's got the Holy Spirit. And then he's also, we learn that he baptises with the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. John's baptising with water. What's Jesus going to do? What's John's testimony about Jesus? He will baptise with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. I'm not the one who gives the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. We have a water baptism and we will see one next week and that's a sign of what has gone on within. We can do the outward one and God calls us to do that as Christians when we believe in him. He calls uh, us to go in and to be baptised. But here we see that this is the only person who baptises with the Holy Spirit. We can baptise with water and we can baptise unbelievers with water. It happens all the time through church history, people being baptised who have got no profession of faith whatsoever of Jesus Christ. It's only Jesus who baptises with the Holy Spirit and so we need to go to him if we want to be baptised with the Holy Spirit. If we want to be born again and have the Holy Spirit working within us, we need to go to Jesus. And then the last thing about Jesus is in verse 34, I have seen and I testify, what's his last testimony about Jesus? That this is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is part of the Godhood, he's part of uh, the Trinity. This is God himself walking among us. This is the only begotten Son of God. So there are my my three main points there. Uh, What John the Baptist is not, what John the Baptist is, what was his testimony. My fourth and last main point then is, what can we learn from John the Baptist? How is he a good example for us? How can we use him as an example? Well, one thing we should learn from John the Baptist is, of course, to be a good witness and never think we are more important than we are. There is always a temptation to puff ourselves up and think that we're we're very good people and we're up there on the scale and not be interested in drawing people to God, we're more interested in drawing people to ourselves. But we see with John the Baptist that he is not interested in talking about Himself, He's not interested in people learning about who he is. He's interested in being a witness. You see it in the way they ask the questions and then his responses. Go back to verse 20. They ask him about being the Christ and he says, He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. We've got five words there. And then they ask him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. He's got three words there. And then they said, are you the prophet? He answers, no. You can kind of see he's getting exasperated here. Stop talking about me and get to the point. I'm here to be a witness. I'm here to give a testimony. I'm not here to talk about myself. And so we need to learn from John the Baptist that that is the same thing for us as well. We can't let ourselves be the centre of attention. We are simply witnesses pointing to someone else, someone greater someone whose sandals we are not worthy to untie. And so we have to remember, and particularly Christian leaders need to remember this. John the Baptist is a bit of a a leader there of God's people 
And so Christian leaders need to look to this all the time. Christian leaders can get a big following, they can have a big church and everyone looking to them and think that they're the focus of attention and start to elevate themselves to levels that are beyond them. To start saying, these are my converts. When we know that only Jesus baptises with the Holy Spirit, only Jesus has converts, we don't convert people to Christ, We convert them to ourselves, but they're not Christ converts. We can't do that work. And so we've got to resist that temptation. And we see this within uh, other religions, leaders doing this. um, We see this in Islam. Islam, of course, looks to the Prophet Muhammad. It doesn't look to Jesus Christ. I'll read you from the Quran. The Quran says, And of Jesus, son of Mary, who said to the Israelites, I am sent forth to you from God. So this is what Jesus says. He's sent from God for two things. What does Muhammad say that Jesus was sent for? To confirm the Torah already revealed, and that is the law. The second thing, and to give news of an apostle that will come after me, whose name is Muhammad. The second thing that uh, Islam believes that uh, that Jesus came to do was to point to Muhammad. It was to confirm the law and then point to Muhammad, to someone greater, someone who's got more revelation for you. If you miss out on this prophet Muhammad, then you're missing out on something. This is a religion that has missed the point. They've elevated someone else to a greater position. Jesus is the focus of attention. He is the greatest one. No Christian should ever elevate themselves or no person should ever, ever elevate themselves to the level of Jesus Christ. And we see this within Roman Catholicism as well. We see the Pope there. Who's got the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Who's got the keys? Well, it's the Pope. They have an interpretation of scripture that the Pope has there. So you've got to follow the laws that the Pope passes down through his bishops and through his his priests and you've got to follow those laws. The Pope is not as great as Jesus Christ and he doesn't have any of the functions of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one. He is the focus of attention. Everyone should be witnessing to Jesus Christ and not to anyone else. We shouldn't be witnessing to the importance of the Pope. We shouldn't be witnessing to the importance of Muhammad. We should be witnessing to Christ. And we as Christians have to remember that. And so, as your preaching elder in my second week here, I've got to remind you that I'm not here to draw people to myself. I'm here to draw people to Jesus Christ and to point them to Christ. This is not your church. This is not John's church. This is not Joel's church. This isn't Ray's church. It's Christ's church. And it should always be the case that people come here and they find that they're being pointed to Christ. They aren't being pointed to people within the community here as the important person. It's to Christ alone. And so when we have visitors come to our church, the thing they should walk away with is that they didn't come along and see a nice group of people and were welcomed along. They should see that they came along and were pointed to Christ, that they met with God there that morning. The people were friendly, they offered them a cup of tea, they welcomed them along, but they saw little bits of Christ in that welcoming. The love that was shown was because they loved Christ. The people at that church, at this church at Dremoyne, They show the love of Christ and so they are showing Christ in what they do. And the preacher, he pointed them to Christ. He didn't point them to himself. And they should go away saying, I met with God this morning. I met with people of God who pointed me to Christ. They didn't point me to themselves. They pointed me to Christ. He is the greatest one. No one else 
within this church building should be claiming to be doing things of Christ or to be doing Christ, um, to being Christ himself or the focus of attention. And so this is a great lesson for us as well that we need to consider ourselves unworthy as well. From John the Baptist we've got a lesson there that we are not the focus of attention. We've got a lesson there that we are not worthy to do anything for God. We are not worthy to untie his sandals, to do that filthy job. And so anything that he calls us to do should be a great honour and a privilege for us to do it. It shouldn't be a chore, it shouldn't be a burden to do things for God. It should be a great privilege. We're doing so much more than untying his shoes. We're doing all kinds of things for him. He asks us in, as part of his church to do all kinds of things. The roster's there. We shouldn't do them because other people will praise us for doing the things on the roster. We should do them because we're doing them for the Lord because it's a task that he has assigned to us to people who are completely unworthy to do it, to get up and read the Bible, read from his word on a Sunday. We're not worthy to do it. To clean the building that he allows people to meet together in each week. We're not worthy to do it. To offer morning tea. You know, we're not worthy to do any of these tasks as part of God's church. To get up and preach the Bible like I'm doing this morning, totally unworthy to be God's mouthpiece. If he wanted to convert people, he shouldn't be using me or any other sinful man. He should be just doing it himself. That's, that's the way I would see it. Don't use me but he calls me to do it, an unworthy person. And he calls each and every one of us to use our gifts to do tasks for him even though we are completely unworthy to do it. We should love to do things for the Lord and so that that all points back to Christ himself. We've got to remind ourselves we are not the Lamb of God. We are not the Son of God. We do not baptise with the Holy Spirit. Make little of yourselves and make much of God, make much of Jesus Christ. And remember, don't draw people to yourselves. Don't draw people along to Dremoyne Baptist as glorifying us, but draw them so that they are drawn to Jesus Christ. That should be the focus and mission of Dremoyne Baptist. All right, let us speak with our God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great testimony of John the Baptist that testifies even to us today so many years ago that he is such a wonderful example for us of someone who didn't want to be uh, sidetracked by talking about himself but was always wanting to talk about Jesus Christ and to be a witness for him and testify who Jesus is. We pray that we will be the same, that we'll never be tempted to think that we are the focus of attention but always wanting to point people to you because you are the greatest and we pray that every task that you call us to do, every gift that you have given us, that we will want to use it because we recognise we are not worthy. You are such a great and infinite God and yet you call us to work for you even in spite of our unworthiness. We pray that we will take these tasks up with relish and love them and enjoy them because we recognise how sinful we are and how great you are. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.